Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. And I'm David Leonhardt. This is The Argument. Today, is American democracy in crisis? With the midterms less than two weeks away, we debate voter suppression and the corruption of our electoral system. Later on, Ross addresses the agony of Republicans who don't like President Trump. What should they do in the midterms? I think that the Republican Party is sick, but I think that Donald Trump contains within himself a clue to the actual cure. And of course, a recommendation. It is just my favorite thing to watch on television. Six years ago, a Democrat named Heidi Heitkamp won a surprise victory in a U.S. Senate race in North Dakota. She won by just 3,000 votes, and she got crucial help from Native American voters. And in this room are people who dared to believe. Dared to believe Almost as soon as she won, Republicans in North Dakota began pushing for laws that would make it harder for Native Americans to vote. Eventually, they passed a law that said people need a physical address to vote. That's a problem for a lot of Native Americans because many of them live on reservations where they don't have physical addresses. They use P.O. boxes instead. Now, many of the Native Americans who supported Heitkamp may not be able to vote in this year's midterms. All of this has the potential to cost Heidi Heitkamp her re-election this year and to help Republicans expand their Senate majority. North Dakota is also just one example of how Republicans are trying to make it harder for people to vote in this country. It's happening in Georgia, in Ohio, and elsewhere. A new voter ID law is in effect that could disenfranchise tens of thousands of voters. An Associated Press analysis shows nearly 70 percent of voters with pending status are black in a state that's only 32 percent black. It's happening by closing polling places and with technicalities. Michelle, I am completely outraged about this. It feels like a blatant attempt to take away people's most basic democratic right. I guess my question is, how much is it going to matter in this year's elections? I think, I mean, we don't know. And in some ways, you never know because the margins are often so small, given how polarized the electorate is. But this is an effort to stack the deck. And it just, honestly, it just fills me with despair. The 1965 Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Roberts Court a few years ago. And it just feels like we are in the midst of this huge democratic backsliding, like all of the promise of real multi-ethnic participatory liberal democracy that we had thought was enshrined since 1965 is being taken away from us. And it's being taken away in a whole bunch of ways, right? It's it's these technicalities on the registration rolls. It's the North Dakota stuff. It's closing polling places. It's having these huge lines. We are clearly very worked up about this, Ross. I am guessing you're going to tell us we are too worked up about this. Yeah, that's that's roughly what I'm going to tell you. Although this is a case where on the merits, I generally agree with liberals. Um, I think basically 
When Republicans are sincere in their concerns about voter fraud, um, when they aren't just being cynical in passing these kind of laws and restrictions, they have an idea, an image of the Democratic Party that was formed basically 40 or 50 years ago when the Democrats ran actual effective big city machines that were really good at sort of mild forms of voter fraud um, and forms of voter fraud, in fact, that may have helped tip the 1960 election to John F. Kennedy. I just think it just seems to me that like it's it seems a little disingenuous. I mean, I know that you're inclined to assume Republican good faith, but it seems a little bit disingenuous to say, well, they have this idea that cannot be disproved by any amount of evidence that there are large numbers of undocumented immigrants voting or that Democrats are trying to register undocumented immigrants and bring them to the polls. No amount of evidence will disabuse them of this notion. And I don't know. It's not just that I don't believe it. I don't know how much they really believe it. I mean, my general approach is to assume good faith from m- most people who aren't elected officials and to assume bad faith from elected officials. I think that that kind of division will carry you well through a lot of <laughs> political analysis. So I think elected officials who are engaged in some of these shenanigans know pretty well that you're talking about at best an incredibly minor problem with voter fraud and that by making that an issue, they are on the margins helping to sort of tamp down turnout that favors Democrats. I think the average Republican voter looks at the Democrats today and says, you know, just as there were big city machines in Mayor Daley, Chicago, that were stuffing the ballot box in different ways and having dead people vote, the Democrats are probably doing the same thing with um, illegal immigrants today. I I think that is that's a sincerely held and and and, and mistaken. But but listen, let let me I'm I'm agreeing with you. So let me agree with you for a minute since since I'll get to disagreeing with you in a minute. In general, there have been lots of surveys on voter fraud. It's a marginal, 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 marginal problem. And the means to deal with it, voter ID laws and these kind of things, generally do have a disproportionate impact on minorities. And as such, I'm generally against the kind of laws that a bunch of Republican states have passed recently. So we have agreement on that. Now, let me try and talk you out of your despair, okay? First of all, There is very little evidence so far, and maybe this will change over the next few election cycles, that these laws have significant impacts on elections. I'm looking at 538, a tries to be a neutral and dispassionate website and analyst of elections, and their summary of research on voter ID laws said that they generally find modest, if any, turnout effects from passing these laws. There's a piece in Slate by Rick Hasen, who's liberal, very critical of all of these laws, that talks about how, you know, it's a big country and in large parts of red America and purple America, voting has gotten easier. So the landscape of voting across the country, I don't think generally merits this kind of description of democratic backsliding. I think you have a few high profile cases in close races where Democrats are right to make a stink about it and it might make a difference to the election. But I'll I'll end with this point. David started out talking about how these rules about having addresses for Native American voters in North Dakota could cost Heidi Heitkamp the election there. I'm looking at the real clear politics average of the last few polls from North Dakota. Heidi Heitkamp is trailing by 11 points. And to me, if you're a Democrat worried about your party and your position in American democracy and everything else, that 11-point deficit is the problem. 
And whatever voter laws North Dakota passed are not creating that 11-point deficit. They're not the reason the Democrats went from having 60 seats in the Senate just a few short years ago to being in the minority today. So yes, by all means, be outraged about this, but recognize that this is not the big reason the Democrats have been losing. But I don't think anybody's saying it's the big reason. I think if you're talking about the idea that this is a source of despair and that we're this is a source of creeping authoritarianism, the implication is that this makes a big difference. It does make a big difference. You know, look, I think that if you say, oh, well, it's just one governorship, it's just one or two states of the old Confederacy, that's enough to feel deep and profound despair about. A mild effect on suppressing voter turnout has huge implications for who's going to control this country, as we learned in the disastrous election of 2016 that was settled by 80,000 vote, which is basically a rounding error. Ross, I think you make a couple of fair points there. I mean, look, when I've talked about how low voter turnout is among people under age 30 or among Latinos or Asian Americans, one of the responses I get on social media is, but voter suppression. And I think that's wrong. I don't think that's the main reason voter turnout is so low. And so it's not the main reason Democrats are losing elections. They're losing elections because their voters aren't turning out. Put it this way, African Americans who are the biggest target of this voter suppression still vote at much higher rates than people under 30. So we know voter suppression isn't the main thing going on here. But but I guess the problem is, first of all, if it if voter suppression flips any races, it's an outrage. And second of all, this isn't just a debate about voter suppression, right? I think what has me so worried and has Michelle so worried is that it feels like a broad campaign by Republicans to reject some of the fundamental notions of a democratic system. So it's trying to make it harder for people to vote. It's the extreme gerrymandering. And yes, Democrats do extreme gerrymandering too, but Republicans have done more of it. I mean, Michelle, you wrote your very first column for the New York Times about this notion of minority rule, which is this example of the Republicans don't have the support of most Americans, but they're trying to rig the system to essentially hold on to power. And that's what I find to be so worrisome. And that's why the notion of Michelle's despair strikes me as a legitimate feeling to have about what we're witnessing here. Right. And in some ways, the system is already rigged, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about how the underlying structures of our Constitution give disproportionate power to white rural voters in the Senate and the Electoral College. It's the reason that two out of the last five elections have gone to the Republican loser of the popular vote. And then on top of that, you have gerrymandering in the House, as well as the clustering of urban liberals in big cities, which allows Republicans to get the majority of seats, even if they don't get the majority of votes. It's the reason why in the upcoming midterms, Democrats don't just have to win a majority of votes to take back the House. They have to win, I think, at least by six or seven percent to even have a chance of taking back the House. Then you add to that voter suppression closed polling places, you know, places like Dodge City, Kansas, a 60 percent Latino town where they literally closed the only polling place inside the city limits, moved it outside to a mile away from the nearest bus station. At one point, one in seven new voter registrations in Kansas were blocked because of that law, and tens of thousands of eligible citizens would have been stopped from voting at all if the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, and the courts hadn't intervened. And so all of these things add up, and we're already in a situation where I and a lot of other people feel like we are being ruled by a illegitimate, 
undemocratically elected cabal of our enemies. And if that can't be remedied by getting a majority of Americans to vote against them, then I just I can't imagine what that means for our democracy. Michelle, do you pause at all before using the word enemies? I mean, is it, it, it not anymore? I used to. I think two years ago, I maybe believed what Ross believed, which is that there was a lot more good faith disagreement and that we all had kind of similar goals. But I look at a president whose basic raison d'etre is owning the libs, is making people like me and my family and my friends scared and afraid and humiliated. And I see people cheering for him. I see people cheering for him precisely because he does that. And I don't know how to describe them anyway except my enemies. Okay, so let's let's just step back for a minute, right? So about um, two years ago now, we were headed into the 2016 election and liberals and the media and most conservatives who followed things, myself included, expected that Hillary Clinton would be elected president. And Donald Trump started talking about the idea that the system was rigged, that it was a rigged system and that if Hillary won, it would be proof that it was rigged. It's a rigged system. It's totally, it's just terrible what's going on. And then the politicians play right along with it. And there was an outpouring of righteous indignation about how deeply destructive it was for a presidential candidate to assert that the system was rigged. It suggested that you weren't accepting the outcomes of the system, the peaceful transfer of power, all the things that, um, if you will, make America great. And then Trump won. And setting aside or not setting aside, if you want, all the arguments about Russian interference and everything else, he won according to the rules of the system. He won a clear majority in the Electoral College, which is the way that the United States of America picks its presidents. And as soon as Trump won, the rhetoric from not just people on the far left but very sensible centrist liberals like you, David, turned to talking about how, for want of a better word, the system that elected him is illegitimate. Donald Trump is an illegitimate president. You do not consider him a legitimate president. I think that we need to start calling Donald Trump illegitimate. The victory of Donald Trump has led many people who oppose him for totally understandable reasons to assert that the Senate is illegitimate, the Electoral College is illegitimate. The, the Supreme Court, Court, the way House seats are apportioned, all the rest to question the basic structure of our system in a profound way. And maybe that's a good and necessary thing, but we should be clear about what's happening, right? You're right. The election of Donald Trump has led me to fundamentally question our system. I think a system that leads to the outcome of Donald Trump is de facto broken. It has radicalized me in a way that I could have never imagined a few years ago. But I would also say that there have been these long simmering structural issues. Again, I keep coming back to this. If two out of the last five presidents have lost the popular vote, but won the presidency in a country as polarized as this one, there is something deeply wrong. And I'm I'm pretty sure that you would be less sanguine about it if the situation were reversed. My view is that, in fact, that is part of the story of American politics between about 1945 and the 1990s. But I'd also point out that these things that we're talking about are not new. And what the Democrats need to do if they want to radically change any of the things that you guys are so concerned about is win within the system itself, right? There isn't any mechanism to pack the Supreme Court, to add Puerto Rico and D.C. as states, 
to expand the size of the House of Representatives, which I think is a actually a really good idea and sort of an underappreciated one that we should have, you know, 2,000 congressmen in the House rather than hundreds. But you can't do any of those things if you can't win under the existing rules of the game. That's just how that's, that's, that's totally how a Democratic fair. Republic works. But then the existing right? rules of the and game. So the question is, the Democrats were able then, to win but, under these rules the, five, seven, eight years ago, and now they can't. Is that really a cause for sort of total and utter despair about the system? Or is it an argument that maybe you need to accept that, you know, you need a message that plays a little better in North Dakota than the message the Democrats have right now? So, Ross, if I grant you that, that the Democrats need to win under the current system, I guess what I would ask you is if they do win under the current system, when they next have the presidency and Congress, how would you feel about the Democrats saying, look, the current system is unfair. We're going to add Washington and Puerto Rico as states. We're going to pass a sweeping voter rights law so that everyone's automatically registered. We're going to make it easy to vote, not hard to vote. Um, we're going to look at things like expanding the House of Representatives. Would you be in favor of a bill that basically says, hey, we're going to do a whole bunch of things to enfranchise more people? I mean, I'd go case by case, um, but some of those things I'd be fine with. And some of them I wouldn't be fine with, but I wouldn't feel that my democracy was dying. In general, I think the pr part of the problem we have is a convergence of the House and the Senate. And I, I think the best compromise would be to dramatically expand the House, get rid of gerrymandering, make it much more small d democratic, and make the Senate more elitist by repealing the 17th Amendment. How's that for a grand bargain? To clarify for our listeners, the 17th Amendment allows for the direct election of senators rather than ha having them be appointed by um, state governments, which is how it was done for most of our history. Okay, we obviously can't solve this here. So I'm going to wrap it up by urging all our listeners, whether you agree with Ross or you agree with me and Michelle, go out and vote. I recognize that you may sometimes need to wait unfairly long times to do it, and you may face hurdles, but I hope all of our listeners figure out a way to overcome those barriers, because I at least think the country works much better when more people vote than fewer people vote. And if you see a long line, send them a couple pizzas. Okay, we're going to take a break, and we will be right back. This podcast is supported by Mercy Corps. From war in Ukraine, to flooding in Pakistan, to earthquakes in Afghanistan, Mercy Corps is delivering urgent humanitarian assistance and long-term solutions to families in crisis around the globe. Visit mercycorps.org donate to learn more and support lasting solutions in over 40 countries. That's mercycorps.org donate to help build a future where everyone can flourish. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. On to our second segment now. We're going to stay with the midterms because of how important they are, but we're going to look at a different angle, which is, should never Trump Republicans go so far as to vote for a Democrat this year? Ross has a hot take on that, and he's going to explain it to us. Ross, what is it? So here's the pitch. 
Trump skeptical or never Trump Republicans and conservatives should vote for Democrats in the House and Republicans in the Senate. I think that Republicans in Congress have done a pretty good job of restraining Donald Trump on policy. It even <laughs> even the even I hear Michelle's laughter, but hear hear me. I'm out. laughing quietly. Um, you're laughing quietly. Basically, if you're a conservative Republican, you've already gained most of what you're going to gain in terms of policy and legislation from this administration. The only thing left that you can get is more judicial appointments. There's really nothing left sort of on the list for Republicans in Congress. The stuff they do have is very unpopular and very unlikely to pass, even if they retain control of both houses. So I don't think you're giving up a lot in policy terms by letting Democrats win the House. And what you're gaining is something that I think Republicans in Congress haven't supplied, um, which is a check on Trumpian corruption, basically, on you know investigations into the miasma of corruption and self-dealing that hangs around this administration. I think, and David and Michelle will chuckle or laugh mirthlessly at this, but I, I actually think that Republicans, especially in the Senate, have done a pretty good job of checking Trump's worst instincts on policy and have made him govern in ways that resemble, sometimes to a fault, a normal Republican president. Ross, I'm all for your telling Republicans to vote for Democratic House candidates, but that alone feels insufficient to the problems in the Republican Party right now. Well, I mean, I think that maybe one of our fundamental unbridgeable disagreements is that probably you and I, David, far more than Ross, see the Republican Party as a fundamentally sick institution and that Trump is the rotten putrid flower of that sickness, but not necessarily the cause of it. And so it's only, you know, a wholesale defeat that will allow some kind of decent conservatism to reconstitute itself in its place. And a wholesale defeat isn't just the House, right? It's it's certainly not the House and an expanded majority in the Senate, which is possible. I think the distinction is that I think that the Republican Party is sick, but I think that Donald Trump contains within himself, along with all the corruption and demagoguery, a clue to the actual cure in the sense that the campaign that he ran in 2016 by being more economically populist, by repudiating what I think were the much larger mistakes of the Republican Party under George W. Bush on foreign policy, that in those and other respects, there are things that the Republican Party can learn from Trumpism and that therefore it's a more complicated thing than just we need to repudiate Trump and elevate John Kasich and Jeff Flake. I don't want to elevate John Kasich and Jeff Flake. I also don't think they'll actually be elevated if Trump is defeated or repudiated. Who do you want to elevate? Well, nobody yet. I don't think we need to elevate anyone yet because Trump is going to be the face of the Republican Party for at least the next two years. And the Republican Party isn't going to be fixed until there's a strong Republican president. If you actually want the Republican Party to change, assuming that that's what you want, only a decisive loss is going to do that. If Republicans gain seats in the Senate, even if they lose the House, it's going to be seen as a confirmation of the Trumpist strategy. And it's going to not just strengthen Trump, but strengthen Trumpism within the Republican Party. To me, the question is, is it worth it to you to sort of sacrifice a few possible short-term policy gains that you will get with Republican control of the Congress 
for a long-term rebuke of authoritarianism. Michelle, I basically agree with that, meaning I think that the Republican Party is at this point so damaged that I, to me, they need to lose a whole lot in order to reform, which I'm desperate to have happen because I don't see how our country works without it. And yet, I'm actually fine, Ross, with your case because I'm desperate. And my attitude is any kind of peeling off from Republicans voting down the party line is so important. I mean, I am terrified of the idea that the Republicans keep the House. I do think they'll pass more policies. I think they'll try to take health care away from people again. I think it'll be a total endorsement of Donald Trump. And so while it's not exactly what I would see, the notion that conservatives out there would actually be willing to pull the lever for Democrats at all, I think is so important at this moment, that if you're going to, as a conservative, tell people to split your ticket, I am going to be thinking it's not enough, but I'm just going to be cheering from the sidelines. It reminds well, me... Well, I mean, let's, and let's be clear, I'm, you know, the, the constituency that I'm describing who holds these views consists of about 16 people, 15 of whom write for op-ed pages. Well, but... Um, so you're not, you're, not, you're not gaining that much with this kind of splitting, I'll be honest. Okay, but I guess what I would say is, so my extended family has a little WhatsApp group where we talk to each other all the time. Normally, we do not talk about politics um, at all. But this week, we started talking about politics. And people were trying to guess whether my late grandparents, whom I completely adored, and who were lifelong Republicans, would have voted for Donald Trump. And basically, everyone on this group was trying to persuade each other that they wouldn't have voted for Donald Trump. And I inconveniently piped up and said, hey, nearly all registered Republicans voted for Donald Trump, statistically, when you look at it. So I don't know what my grandparents would have done. But the fact is, at the end of the day, Republicans have basically fallen in line behind this party that I think is doing so much damage. Hopefully, some of the people that are going to chip away are educated suburban women who now just find this administration unbearable. And those people are going to peel away. But they I think they're going to just peel away from the Republican Party. They're not going to split their ticket. I, I want to disagree a little bit with both of you in that I don't think I believe anymore that political parties change by suffering huge devastating defeats, which sort of teach them a lesson, teach them that they need to change, teach them how to bounce back and so on. Um, I think that can happen. But one of the lessons to me of the last 10 years is that First, the Republican Party suffered a bunch of devastating defeats late in the Bush era. And what happened was all the moderate Republicans lost. And so the people who remained in the party were much more conservative and the party became more ideologically conservative and you got the Tea Party era. And I know you guys disagree, but I think something somewhat similar has happened to the Democrats where since their Obama era peak, they have lost election after election. And after every election, they sit around and tell themselves that you know the problem was they just weren't liberal enough and they didn't mobilize young voters and minority voters enough and so on. And there isn't a sense in which any of the defeats, including the shocking victory of Trump, have sort of caused Democrats to move to the center. So I, I want the Republican Party to change and be different, but I don't expect some crushing defeat to deliver that. I think the only way that happens is with some intelligent, politically effective leaders who basically look at the Trump era and say, we can learn some good things from Trump's populism and we can abandon some of the you know xenophobic appeals and we can move forward from that. And I'm not optimistic about that happening, but I also don't think that you know the theory that if only the Republicans can be dealt a death blow in these midterm elections, John Kasich will suddenly emerge as the leader of the party. That that just seems to me to you know be disproven by the lessons of the last ten years for both parties.
Michelle, let me ask you, in the situation that's reversed, where there's a corrupt, dangerous Democrat, could you vote for a Republican for the House? It would be really hard for me to pull the lever for a Republican. I've never voted for a Republican in my life. I would vote for my worst enemy as a Democrat over any Republican now living. So I get it. But I also think that if you actually want the Republican Party to change, assuming that that's what you want, only a decisive loss is going to do that. Okay. Well, how about you, David? You have a slightly less dire view of our situation than Michelle, I think. But if you're being asked to vote for Rick Santorum rather than rather than a normal Democrat. Does it have to be it? Rick Santorum? Ooh. Yes. Or yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. You got to make it painful. Look, y- yes, I could do it. I could vote. I don't know about Rick Santorum, but I realize you're making it hard on purpose. So could I vote for someone who is in favor of low taxes on rich people and not nearly enough corporate regulation and taking away health insurance from middle class and poor people in order to stop a corrupt, autocratic Democrat? Yes, I could. It would be painful, but I could do it. Although, look, I really think you're underestimating how sick today's Republican Party is. And I do think a whole bunch of losses are the most likely thing to cure the Republicans of that. So you and I disagree on a whole bunch here. But I'm all in favor of your saying to Republicans, Donald Trump needs some accountability. So please vote at least for Democratic House candidates. But you know what's going to happen. Democrats are going to take the House. They're not going to win the Senate. And because they take the House... Trump is going to successfully work with them to pass a bunch of economically centrist legislation, and he's going to get reelected. And we're all going to be sitting back here in two years with Donald Trump reelected, and you guys are all going to blame me for it. I reserve the right to blame you for it, but I would much rather have him checked now and deal with the 2020 campaign in 2020. Okay, that's a good place to leave it. We would like to hear what you all have to say about this. If you are a never-Trumper, are you considering voting for a Democrat this year? If you're a Democrat, would you ever consider voting for a Republican to prevent emboldening an autocratic president? Send us an email at argument at nytimes.com and let us know what you think. Okay, now it is time for our weekly recommendation, and this week is Michelle's turn. Michelle, what's your recommendation? I am going to recommend a television show called The Good Fight, um, which is so delightful and so much fun. And for those of us who are having a very hard time in our current reality, it's a kind of balm to see all of your anxieties and frustrations and terrors reflected in fiction. Um, The Good Fight is a spinoff of the CBS show The Good Wife. It finally came to iTunes and I downloaded the whole thing and couldn't believe that I had missed these two seasons. It is just my favorite thing to watch on television. And it's about a smart, elegant, liberal lawyer in her late 50s or early 60s, played by Christine Baranski, whose life falls apart in tandem with the election of Donald Trump and the drama of this law firm traces the drama in the country. There's an episode in which her firm gets their hands on the P-tape. You were videotaped urinating for Mr. Trump in a Moscow hotel room. Suite. Excuse me. Hotel suite. And basically decides to 
bury it. It's just really smart and it's not an escape from the news, but it's an escape from feeling miserable about the news. But they bury the P-tape? That sounds insane, right? If you've got the P-tape. It's very frustrating, but within the kind of narrative constraints of the episode, it makes sense. They kind of realize that it's anticlimactic. I guess that raises a question, Michelle. If you came upon the P-tape, what would you do with it? I would put it out in a hot second. And if any argument listeners have it, please find my email address and send it to me immediately. I would definitely read the column where you describe the P-tape as, ba- as hard as it would be to read. New York Times standards would, would require some very artful, I think, constructions. Uh, you are definitely right about that. The sentences where you're, <laughs> where you're describing something and everyone knows what you're describing, but you're not using the actual words, which if you've worked for the New York Times, you've written those sentences. Okay, I like it. I'm going to try the first episode of The Good Fight, and I will report back whether I go further than that. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Again, we would like to hear your feedback and questions. Email us at argument at nytimes.com. This week's show is produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Freddie Chavez. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Thank you to Yale Broadcast and Kaiser Health News. Check out their podcast, What the Health. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next week for our final episode before the 2018 midterm elections. Michelle, you gotta you gotta let me make my pitch here. Come on. The Republicans are listening. They told me to interrupt. No, I know, I know. <laughs> You can make money the hard way becoming a bullfighter or save money the easy way with Xfinity Mobile. It sure beats making money as a human cannonball. Now through March 21st, learn how existing Xfinity customers can get a free line of unlimited intro for a year when they buy one unlimited line. That's hundreds of dollars in savings on your wireless bill. Visit XfinityMobile.com today. Restrictions apply. Xfinity Mobile requires Xfinity Internet. Reduce speeds after 20 gigabytes of usage per line. Data thresholds may vary.